All right, let's grab our Bibles as we talk about a fascinating subject this morning. I don't know about you, but I think it's easy for me to say that 2023 is off to an interesting start, isn't it? Every time we, you know, access media, we find out something else is happening either in our nation or in our world. And it seems to be in every aspect, spiritually, economically, politically, medically, science, in every aspect around the world, seems more... Uh, unstable now than it ever has been before. We see the world realigning like we've never seen before. And yet in the midst of all of the troubling things that we have been seeing and reading since the beginning of this year, on February 6th, a small article appeared in many newspapers. It was about a gathering that was taking place down in Ashbury University, a work of the Holy Spirit, they indicated, and they used the word revival to describe what was taking place there in Kentucky. And you know, as the story went, it went on for weeks. What started out as a simple Bible study continued for weeks in prayer and worship, confession, and many other things. People from all over the world gathered in Kentucky to experience it and to see it for themselves. And it wasn't contained there. Then shortly after that, and over the next several weeks, 31 different locations nationally and internationally began to experience the same thing. Incredible things happening in Africa and in Vietnam, where God seems to be moving in a way that we haven't seen in such a long time. Then on February 22nd, a movie was released that many of us hopefully have gone to see, The Jesus Revolution, talking about what I believe was the last great awakening here in the United States of America that didn't take place so much within the church as it did amongst the hippies. And the saying is, if God can save a hippie, he can save anybody, okay? But you and I are still part of that story today. Being a Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel was birthed out of that awakening. And here we are in 2023, still seeing the Lord work in ways we only dreamt of. It's an exciting time. And Certainly, people are talking about revival. It seems to be on the lips of many Christians today. Everywhere you look, people are talking about revival, about awakening. But because it's been such a long time since we've really discussed this here in our nation, people are realizing, hey, we don't really know what this is all about. Hey, a revival's going on. Hey, that's great. What's a revival? (laughs) Uh, Is that something that happens on Tuesdays at the church? What is a revival? And many people now are questioning that. And in that question, they're trying to determine if what we saw at Ashbury and other places are truly considered revivals or not. Now, I don't know where you stand on that, but the point I'm going to make today is to help you discover biblically what revival looks like. 
to see what it looks like when God moves amongst his people. Because I believe the characteristics of God's move in the, in the Old and New Testament should parallel the characteristics that we see today in things and experiences that we call revival. Would you agree? The reason I say that is because if it's the God who worked back then, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then it's only consistent to think that he'll work the same way today. And that's what we are going to be looking at this morning. What is revival? Another word that's often used synonymously with the word revival is the word awakening. Awakening. Now, I personally hold to a distinct difference between the two. And it can be defined such as this, very simply. Revival happens amongst God's people. An awakening happens in the unsaved world. And we have biblical examples of both. Today we'll be looking at revival. Next Sunday we'll be looking at awakening. That's why I personally hold to and believe that what we saw in the beginning of the Calvary chapels was more than a revival, it was awakening. Why? Because the hippies were getting saved by the thousands. And then it moved all the way across this nation into what is now known as the Jesus Movement. It's a fascinating time. And we've had many awakenings here in the United States. I believe we've had three. The first one happened uh, back in the 1700s through men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, incredible preachers of that day. Then we had a second move of God. And then a third move that we now call the Jesus Movement. I personally am praying for a fourth. All right? Because I really believe that sometimes God saves the best for last. But this morning, I want to talk about revival. And before we can begin to discuss it, let us first try to define it. C.H. Spurgeon wrote when he said, he defines revival as, and I quote, to, it is to live again, to receive again a life which has almost expired to rekindle into a flame the vital spark which was nearly extinguished. Another one wrote, he says, Revival is a time when heaven draws closer to earth. Or another one who specified this, saying it's directed towards God's people. He says, you see, revival is for the church. When we say revival, what we are really saying is that God's people need to get back to living the Christian life as it was meant to be lived. And if we are revived, if, if we are revived it will then impact our entire country. So a revival starts in the church. More specifically, revival starts with you. Another one wrote, he says, revival is only for the believer. Again, he says to quote Spurgeon, to be revived is a blessing which can only be enjoyed by those who have some degree of life. Those who have no spiritual life are not and cannot be in the strictest sense of the term subjected, subjects of revival. A true revival is to be looked for in the church of God. And lastly, one was asked, what is revival? He, is, he said, it is Christians getting back to what they should have always been in the first place. It is Christians coming back to life. 
Now, one that really fascinated me was by one of my heroes, A.W. Tozer. When Tozer was asked, he says, It is when the Holy Spirit takes over that which is His. Instead of being pushed aside into the benediction of the service, He now becomes the chief executive of the church, and He is running it. Wow, I couldn't define it better than that. Revival happens within the hearts of God's people. It is a work of the Holy Spirit and of God. And it draws Christians back to, the, to what they always should have been. I don't know about you, but we need revival. When I see the statistics of the number of people who identify as Christian, but then discover through the qualifying questions after that, that they really, in no sense of the word, have any real heart for God. They don't have a heart for fellowship. They don't have a heart for God's people. They don't have a heart for prayer. They don't have a heart for God's word. They don't have a heart for the lost. I have to ask myself the question, are you really saved? Because someone who is truly saved will adopt the heart that God has for them. Revival is bringing us back to that heart desire for the things of God. Now, we may think that revival is a term that we use in our modern day culture, but we find it in the Old Testament. David spoke about it. Isaiah spoke about it. Habakkuk spoke about it. One of my favorite books of the Old Testament. Notice with me in Psalm 85, 6, when David writes, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Or when David wrote in Psalm 80:18, Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, he says, and we will call upon your name. For Isaiah stated in Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell high and holy place with, it, with him who has continu, uh, contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. And Habakkuk, like I said, one of my favorite Old Testament books, in very troublesome times, he asks of the Lord in Habakkuk 3.2, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Lord, work again. That's what he's saying. Even in troublesome times. In the midst of the years, make it known. In the wrath, please, he says, remember mercy. They were crying for it back then. And if we are going to prepare ourselves for what God wants to do next, we have to know and understand what revival is. If we're going to pray for revival, then let us truly have a, uh, an accurate definition of what that looks like. Because not only will we discover this morning what revival is, but we're also going to clearly articulate what it is not. It is not an emotional experience that one has with God. Too often we leave church after having an emotional experience of some sort, of some nature, and we automatically conclude that that emotional experience has somehow been an encounter with God. But see, I think emotional experiences are a lot like cotton candy. You know, you go to the fair, the carnival, 
you buy cotton candy, you start out with this big blob of sugar. I personally think they should give you a meter to read your blood sugar afterwards, but you get this huge thing of sugar. And you eat it, and every bite is like, oh, God is great, for he's made cotton candy great, you know. And, and you're just loving it. And it tastes good. But then you realize that there's nothing to it. It doesn't fill you up. It doesn't satisfy you in any way. And for the rest of the day, you're shaking like this from the sugar high you've just created for yourself. Emotional experiences can be very misleading. They can think that we've had an impact with God and when we, in actuality, we haven't. Maybe we've been moved by a song or a touching story that was told in the sermon. Now, I'm not negating all emotional experiences, but I'm saying that if we reduce every spiritual experience to simply an emotional one, we are missing it. Because one of the things that we will see from the very beginning is that when revival occurred in the Old Testament, the impact was great and it lasted. Because there's no way that you can have a true encounter with God and not be impacted by it. There's no way. So this week I sent out an email to the church to have you read four passages of Scripture. Three in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. If you didn't get that email, uh, let me give you those passages now and you can read them and we'll wait for you. 1 Kings chapter 8, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Nehemiah chapter 8, and Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And we begin our look at revival in the Old Testament with the dedication of Solomon's temple. Now you may say, well, that's an interesting place to start. This is when God's people were called back to God after the temple being completed there in Jerusalem. Solomon now is proceeding to dedicate that temple. The people are gathered. The ark is brought in to the holy place in the temple. The cloud, the appearance of the Lord, has filled the temple to the point that the Scripture tells us that the, the priests, the police, the priests couldn't even stay within the temple. It was too awesome. Okay? They realize that no, we, we can't stay in here. The holiness of God is filling this place. And we'll watch as Solomon then prays to dedicate the temple. And we begin this morning, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8, but I ask you also to hold a place, 2 Chronicles 7. We'll flip back and forth. Again, this is the same account in two books. And we begin with the prayer of Solomon. And we look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Verses 26 through 30. And as Solomon's praying, I want you to listen to these words. Because I think that these indicate a heart that is prepared for revival. And he says, And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and prayer which your servant is praying before you today. 
that your eyes may be open towards this temple day and night, towards the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servants make towards this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. And when they pray towards this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, notice what he says, forgive. Number one, when we truly begin to pray for revival, we are asking for the presence of God to be powerfully amongst us. Solomon's saying that this temple is great and all, but if it wasn't for your promise to my father David that you would reside there, it doesn't mean anything. You know, this church building doesn't mean anything if we, the church, aren't present and if God isn't present with us, right? We saw many churches in the book of Revelation that thought that God was with them when in actuality, in one case, He was standing on the outside, not present with them at all. Revival asks God to be present. Now, we know that He is present with us, that He'll never leave us or forsake us. But we're asking for that filling. We're asking for that flow of the Spirit. We're asking for such an impact from His presence that we are changed in the wake of it. As each and every individual at that time was. We then see later on in 1 Kings 8, 62-64, if you turn there, that when Solomon went to dedicate the temple, then the kings and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord. Now notice this, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Oh my How'd you like to clean up after that? I could just see the, the guy with the broom afterwards and the mop. Okay, this was serious, right? 20, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. You think they were serious? The expense, the cost of this sacrifice? But what is too great to give to God? What is it that we have that God has not given us? When we seek God for revival, we must be willing to lay it all down before Him. Every bit. As Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Take all of me, Lord. Take it all. This will prepare our heart for what God would want to do next. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 64, notice this. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat and peace offerings. Meaning that what they had before and what they would use on a daily basis was nothing in comparison to this moment. This is a unique moment. Now, we can't stop there because after the sacrifices, we have to know if you flip to 2 Chronicle chapter 7, again, this is the same event, giving us a little bit different perspective, a little bit more information. In 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, notice how God responds. 
So when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord was on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worship and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good and for His mercies endure forever. Okay, that's impact, right? That's something you can't escape. Can you imagine just standing there and seeing this occur before you as these, as these offerings are presented and God Himself consumes them before His people? In offering of the sacrifice, as God responds, the people only respond in the way that is appropriate, and that is to bow before the Lord in repentance and in humility. But notice, in the wake of this encounter with God, it isn't His wrath that they talk about. It isn't His righteousness, which He is, right? He's perfectly righteous. In the wake of this, they talk about His goodness. They talk about His mercies enduring forever. And we'll notice that after true revival, there's often a great joy that accompanies it. Where you feel like you are walking on clouds in the wake of what the Lord has done. If you flip back to 1 Kings 8, 65 and 66... We're going to notice how the people then again respond. And at that time, Solomon held a feast with all of Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before the Lord our God seven days and seven more days. They just kept partying. And on the eighth day, he sent the people away, And they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for his people Israel. They were rejoicing. They partied for 14 days, okay? And when it was all said and done, they went away joyful, rejoicing in the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to David and for the blessings that God has towards His people. And if you flip with me one more time to 2 Chronicles, chapter 2, verses 7, 12 through 14. God appeared to Solomon one more time. And notice this. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself, as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people and he would do so in their wake of their disobedience, he then gives them the promise that all of us, I think, are holding to 
in verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins and heal their land. How many of you would like to see that happen right now? Oh gosh, me too. But do you notice what he says there? Doesn't start with the world. Doesn't start in Washington. It starts with us. If my people will humble themselves, if my people will call upon my name, if my people will pray and seek my face, if my people will turn away from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. And I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. Let's not look for this thing to begin elsewhere. If we are seeking revival... Let us look no farther than the mirror that we look into every single morning. It starts with us. It starts with us. As we make our way to Nehemiah, we'll see how it starts. Because as we come to Nehemiah, we realize now that after the Babylonian captivity, Nehemiah leading the remnant back to Israel, and one of the purposes of leading them back is to rebuild the temple, Solomon's temple that was destroyed, to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem because it was in ruins, it was in shambles, and it was all due to their personal sin. They weren't obedient to God. So he led them into captivity for 70 years. It is articulated by the book of Daniel. And then we see that God leads Nehemiah back with the prophet Ezra to rebuild everything, but in the course of doing so, they see that there's a problem amongst God's people. They're weary. They're tired. It seems like a monumental task in which they're facing the wall, the homes, the temple. And they're doing it under an incredible weight of opposition and persecution and in the midst of very troublesome times. So they seek the Lord, and they knew that the only way that they were successfully going to fulfill what God was asking them to do is if they turned their hearts back to the Lord. So how did they do that? They raised a tent, and they brought in two pianists, or pianists, to play. And they're going to have an old-fashioned revival meeting at 7 o'clock on Thursday, right? (laughs) To gain their hearts back to the Lord. No, it was even more simple than that. You know what they did? They read and taught God's Word. They read and taught God's Word openly among the people. And the Spirit of God through the Word of God did its work. And it brought the people back to where they needed to be spiritually. Notice with me as we come now to Nehemiah chapter 8. As they return to the land to rebuild Jerusalem, the walls and the temple, they, all the people there, they gathered together. And Nehemiah had Ezra the priest read from God's word in Nehemiah 8 verses 2 and 3. Notice with me if you will. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear and understand on the first day of the seventh month. All right, we're getting together, everybody. 
And if you can understand what Ezra is saying, you need to be there. Okay? And notice in verse 3, Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. You think, I go long. I don't want to hear it anymore, folks. I'll call in Ezra as a guest speaker and just see you wiggle through it. Okay? Sweat through it. Before the men and the women and those who could understand, and notice what happens here, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were reading the first five books. They were bringing it back to the minds and the hearts of God's people. God's word. God's word is capable of bringing about revival. And if you go down a verse to Nehemiah 8, 5 through 6, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people when he opened it, and all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen and Amen, while lifting their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their face to the ground, which of course means of repentance. They humbled themselves before their God simply in the wake of the reading of the Word of God. It was that powerful. And in Nehemiah 8.8, notice here that we give more of a description of what they did. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense, meaning the meaning, the understanding to help them understand the reading. It's one thing to proclaim, to preach God's word in the sense of, of delivering the gospel in hopes people will receive Christ in its wake. But after that, notice that in Acts chapter 2, and this is what we're going to get to this Wednesday, it wasn't enough to leave the people there. It was then incredibly important, key crucial, that they taught the people that they began to grow in their faith, that they began to mature in their faith. Because Jesus did not call us to make converts, he asked us to make disciples. Yes, and that begins with evangelism, one getting saved, but after that, the people need to be taught, and that's what they did here. They taught God's word. That's why we do it here today. If it worked for Ezra, it'll work today, right? Same God then, same God today. Same word then, Same word today. And I have that much confidence in it. And as a result, as you read into chapter 9, the people repented. But notice here first in Nehemiah 8, 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept, when they heard the word of the Lord. But Nehemiah didn't want to leave them there. Ezra didn't want to leave them there. They had repented. And now that you've repented, look what he says in verse 10, and 11, uh, 10 through 12. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat. They were on the keto diet. Drink the sweet and send portions to those uh, for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen to that. 
So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for this for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Yeah, it's a bitter moment when God convicts our hearts and it leads to our repentance. But after we repent before our God, remember what John wrote to us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may come into the, broke, uh, into the church broken before the Lord, repenting of sin, but once you do so and you leave it there and you say in your heart, no more, Lord, I want to walk with you in the power of the new life and the spirit in which you've given me. You can rejoice in knowing that God is with you. Repentance is the beginning of restoration. Any true revival will include true repentance. Any true revival of God will include true repentance. And that repentance is gained when we are convicted of our sins, the way we are convicted is by hearing God's word, telling us what sin is before God and how to resolve it with God. But that brings us to the New Testament. And actually, we're still looking at the Old Testament period when it comes to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Again, revival is for God's people. So we're looking at accounts that deal with God's people. And we know that before John the Baptist emerged onto the scene, there was a 400-year period of silence. God was silent with his people for 400 years. And in the course of those 400 years, Israel became an incredibly difficult place to be. First, it was the Greeks that came and oppressed them in the manner in which they did. Shortly after, followed by the Romans, which of course were the oppressors of the time of the Gospels. They had lost their national sovereignty. Many had walked away from God. The religious leaders were so corrupt that the people no longer respected them. When Jesus came and finally began to teach, they said about him, he is unlike the Pharisees, for he teaches with authority. But Jesus was preceded by one that we know as John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 3, we see John the Baptist calling God's people back to God, preparing the way for the coming Messiah to be in their presence, notice this, in their presence, in incredibly difficult times, preaching repentance and preparing the people's hearts to receive the Lord. Notice with me in Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. And he, that is John the Baptist, went into all of the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. This was directly targeting God's people. This wasn't for the world. Salvation came to the Jews first. But this was asking and inviting and convicting God's people, the Jewish people, to come back to him. As it was written in the book 
of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places made straight, and the rough places made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here it is. God's coming. And though today we are anticipating his first coming, we certainly are looking for his second, aren't we? And I believe that as we seek God for the purpose of revival, reviving of his church, we must know and do so with the anticipation of his return, right? Not that we are ushering in his return by our repentance, but that we are preparing ourselves to be used in these last days for his glory and his purposes. If, if time is short, and I can say this with certainty, we are 2,000 years closer than we've ever been before. There is too much happening in our world today not to take notice. Not to say, hey, God, I think something's up. There's just too much happening. It seems like the whole world is quaking. That the birth pangs are showing. Describing and telegraphing to you and I, Jesus is coming back soon. And revival is needed. But notice, he warns them of the wrath that is to come and to bring forth repentance that is worthy. And I want to talk about that in a minute, but let's look as we continue in verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, he said, brood of vipers. There you go. That's called an icebreaker. And it wasn't a term of endearment. It was like, look, you snakes, you know. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Hey, I know that we like to talk about God's grace. I've been introduced at conferences as the epitome of God's grace. I thought that was a compliment until I looked up the word epitome. Then I realized that the grace of God precedes the wrath of God. And all of us know as we read and continue to study the book of Revelation, as we continue in a couple weeks in chapter 6, things are going to get incredibly difficult here on this earth during the tribulation period. It's going to be a time as the world has never seen before. It's going to be rough as the wrath of God is poured out upon this world. But I believe that as Christians, God comes for his church first to take us out, that he then may pour the wrath upon the unbelieving world. Now, people will still get saved during that time, but instead of living for God as we do today, they'll have to die for Him as a martyr as they resist the authoritarian uh, attitude of the Antichrist during that period of time. The wrath of God needs to be talked about. John talked about it, Jesus talked about it, the apostles talked about it. We cannot deny that the wrath of God is real, right? Can't deny it. But there is a way of escape, and that escape is Jesus Christ. And he is the only way of escape from the wrath that is to come. In verse 8, he says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. 
John the Baptist did not go to the school of political correctness. <laughs> he said it as he saw it. John the Baptist was calling them out. Now, what he means by this is that they thought maybe in their hearts, well, we're Jewish people, we're good. I was born a Christian. I was raised in the church. I was baptized as an infant. I'm good. I think my mom and dad signed on the confirmation certificate somewhere. I'm confirmed. I've, I've been told each and every one of these. But then I say, do you know Jesus? Have you been born again? Have you, has your repentance brought about true fruit? And that fruit is change. Do you have a heart for God and His people? Do you have a heart for His Word and prayer? Do you enjoy spending time with God each and every day? Are you conscientious of what you do and what you say and what you see and hear? Do you have conviction in your heart? Has the new birth actually taken place? He's saying here very clearly, hey, just because you think you're Jews and you're automatically okay, God can make Jews from these rocks. Real repentance is always followed by change. True repentance, genuine repentance is always followed by change. There's a big difference between repentance and remorse. I know all about that. During junior high, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, the dean of students had a desk in his office with my name on it. And I was in there so often that sometimes when I got to school, instead of going to my homeroom, I just went right to his office. He says, what are you doing here? And I said, I'll probably be here in a couple periods anyway. And he would ask me often, he goes, are you truly sorry for what you have done or are you just sorry that you got caught? And I said, well, I'm definitely sorry I got caught. That's remorse. Well, I'm going to have to call your dad. Now I'm really sorry I got caught. But repentance is when God confronts you, convicts you, and you take your heart before him and say, Lord, forgive me. Change me. It's often accompanied with a brokenness. It's often accompanied with uh, tears of repentance and I should say of mourning because of the fact that we realize that truly when it's all said and done, the only one that we have sinned against is God and God himself. That's what he was calling out here for. Worth, repentance of, that's worthy. And then notice what he does in verse 15, if you will. He created an expectation of the Lord. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. I have seen that through, within real revival, there is a renewed expectation of the Lord. There's a new sense of conscience awareness of God's return. And it's something that naturally seems to occur in the hearts of people who experience revival. 
The presence of God at the moment in which they've experienced help them realize that God could come back at any moment. There's an expectation that's created, and in the wake of that expectation, as John writes in his first epistle, it moves them to live holy lives before God. As Peter wrote, be holy for God is holy. If we can think that revival takes place apart from holiness, we are absolutely deceiving ourselves. Because true revival will bring about true repentance, it brings about true change that leads to holiness before the Lord. And what I mean by that is to be wholly devoted before the Lord, all of us, all of our being. You know, so many in America today interact with God as, as if He was just simply a supplement, like their daily vitamins that they have in their closet or in their, you know, uh, what, what's it called, cabinet above their sink. And, you know, I'm feeling a little down today, so I'm going to take a little God. And then when they're feeling good, they totally skip it. But that's not what God asks of us, is it? Paul said it this way in theological terms. He says God must be preeminent in our hearts. He must be everything. He must be the sole residence on the throne of our hearts. He must be number one. And I am far second. True revival takes the shape of this. And what we are going to see that in these passages today and in next week, there are some commonalities that can be derived from these things. Number one, true revival is a work of God. Do we all agree with that? We cannot manufacture it. I can't have Chris and everyone up here saying, all right, keep playing until we have revival. 31 hours later, we're not there yet, Chris, keep playing until we have revival. It is a work of God. It cannot be manufactured by man. It cannot be scheduled by man. God shows up when God desires to show up, right? Number one, it is a work of God. Number two, it's, it's almost always preceded by the prayers of God's people. Hey guys, if the world around us isn't driving us to our knees, then we need to re-examine our hearts, Right? Every single day I am found, I feel so helpless. Lord, this is so much bigger than I am, but it's not bigger than you. And so the very first place that I go, it's not my last option, the very first place I go is to my knees in prayer saying, Lord, we need your help. Last night the Lord woke me up at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm just watching the ceiling fan go around over my bed. And I said, this is, this is silly. I'm just going to get up and start praying. And it was a great time with the Lord. And I said, Lord, this is way too big, what's happening. What's happening in Russia and India and China and Ukraine and Israel and Iran and America, our economics, the banking collapse and everything else. This is just too big, Lord. But Lord, I just want to keep my eyes on you as the storms are raging around me that I may walk above them because I can't do it in and of myself. Help me, Lord, to keep my eyes on you. And by how we do that is by prayer. Second, number three, is the proclamation of God's word. God's word must be proclaimed at this time now more than ever. If you haven't been reading your Bibles up until now, I say to you, it is no longer an option, it is a necessity. 
And as the great Nike advertisement said, just do it. It's time now to wake up and to start reading God's Word to comfort you in these days. And God's Word will then, number four, lead us to repentance. And remember that repentance starts with us. I think all of us, and I think I saw that down in Ashbury a little bit. Did you notice how everybody was converging upon the school? Oh, revival is happening here. What do you think? God lives in Kentucky? The temple is not in Kentucky. That's just one place that he may be working. It can start right here in Illinois. Even though, you know, the Democrats are in charge. God can still have a revival. Okay? It doesn't matter. And if he starts moving amongst his people here in the state of Illinois, you know how much the government can do about it? Nothing. Nothing. It might get tough. But there's nothing they can do to stop what God wants to do. Number five, and this is a little bit more than what we're going to talk about next week, true repentance spreads across the country and we will begin to see the, lo- the loss being saved. Well, hey, that's what I'm ready to see, right? For years, I have been reading about church growth. And I am usually nauseated by the end of the article because in each and every case, what we discover, churches bragging about their growth. But what has actually taken place, if you look at it objectively, is not individuals outside the church getting saved and the church growing that way. It's, it's individuals uh, moving and migrating from one church to another. Oh, our church grew by 20%, but the church down the street <laughs> shrunk by 20%. Okay, do we all agree that's not church growth? That's just church transplant. I'm not interested in church transplant. If you want to come to Calvary, you're welcome to come to Calvary. We'd love to have you here, maybe. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But I'm not interested in transplant. I was actually at a conference here. It was actually a radio event. And one of the pastors says that he was so proud of his church because they had captured the largest market share of Christians in this area. What? Market share of Christians? What are you, Amazon church or something, you know? That's ridiculous. I want to see people get saved, don't you? I want to see people come off the streets into our church, broken, battered, the world beat them up, and you know what? They come on in, we show them the love of Jesus Christ, stand back and watch God, what God can do in their life. I want to be part of that. Amen. That's what I want to be part of. And personally, I'm praying that it happens within the woke society. Wouldn't? Yeah. You want to talk about transition? I want to talk about transformation. Amen. That's what I want to talk about. Amen. I don't know if you guys have read that the bakery in the area that we prayed about here at church a couple months back on a prayer and worship night that was hosting drag shows for children. I, I hate to say it, but they are going out of business at the end of this month. Oh, rats. The awakening. So it spreads across the country. The salvation of the lost, which is more than just an emotional experience. 
And then lastly, and here's the one we need to brace ourselves for. Okay, you ready? Sitting down? That is the satanic resistance that's going to occur. The moment we get serious about God is the moment Satan gets serious about us. And that's why we have to be well-grounded in God's Word to weather the storms that are going to come. Now, one of the things that we have to be aware of is that often it isn't the world where we discover some of the most difficult persecution. It's from our other brothers and sisters in Christ who don't like what God happens to be doing. It's sad. There's a lot of videos now criticizing the Ashbury revival. I don't know if it's a true revival of God or not. The reason I say it that way is this. Time will tell. Time will tell. I'm not going to be critical. I'm going to be discerning. I'm going to be wise. But I am not going to criticize watching kids going up and repenting of their sins. I'm not going to be critical of people just because they sang songs for days after days in praise to God. Remember, we just read that they went 14 days in the Bible, right? 22,000, you know, ox and bulls and then 120-some thousand sheep. That was a sacrifice, wasn't it? But let's see what happens. Let's see what God is doing. Let us not take the position of Pharisee right away, okay? But we do need to be discerning. We need to look at everything through God's Word. And one of the things we see that when God begins to move, guys, it's not always this neat, tidy little thing. It's often very messy because God's working with people and we're messy people. Our lives are a mess, right? And it's God who cleans them up. I just want to take a moment to pause and just say, Lord, what are you doing here? Hey, if there's something wrong biblically, I'll be one of the first ones to call it out. But let's take a step back and just pray and see, right? And uh, right now, I will rejoice with them. They're praising God. Oh, but they're singing out of key. They're using drums and not only a piano. You know, people, we can be very critical of one another, can't we? Let's not be critical, but let's be discerning. We all agree? All right, I want to leave you with this. I want to read this to you. So the church as a whole needs revival, as one wrote. But I added this. But Calvary Chapel Cardinal needs revival. Let's personalize it. You need revival. And I need revival. What is revival? One person defined it as it follows. Revival is a beginning of a new obedience to God. So let's look at you. Let's look at myself for a moment and ask the question, how am I doing right now spiritually? Was there a time when my faith was stronger than it is today? Maybe a time where I loved the Word of God. I loved to open it every day and read what it had to say. I couldn't wait to hear the Word of God taught. I just filled my heart and my mind with God's Word and all, day, uh, all day and all night. Is it still that way today? Or have you lost your first love? Have you compromised? Have you fallen into the sin of this world and become corrupt? 
Or worse yet, have you stagnated and become lukewarm like the church in which God spewed out of His mouth? As Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, this is how we get back to the Lord. Nevertheless, He says, I have this against you, that you left your first love. That's what we need to get back to. We need to love Jesus, right, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's where it all begins. If we want revival, that's where it starts. We must love Him. And if we've left our first love, not that we lost it, but if we left it, remember, therefore, where you have fallen, number one, remember, number two, repent and do the first works again, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Every year I hear something absolutely profound and I make a note of it. I make a note of it. And this year I've heard it already. I don't think anything will supersede what I heard just the other day. Profound. When we all went to see as a church the Jesus Revolution, after the credits and after we heard Greg share the gospel with those who were there, Samuel... Samarero, a young man who went with us, said, oh, this was so good, I can't wait for the sequel. That was a great, great question. That was a great statement. But Nathan Frankowski said something that was so profound, I loved it, and I'm going to steal it, and from this point forward, call it my own. <laughs> but it was so profound what he said to Samuel in all seriousness and gentleness. He said, Samuel, you and I and us, we are the sequel. We are the next step to it all. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. He's going to want royalties for this now, so don't <laughs> clap too soon. But that's so true, folks. <laughs> Ushers, where's Larry? Where's Larry? Folks, we are the sequel. We talked about temples a lot today, but we did so because of this. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Oh boy, bring to nothing. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And just as they sacrificed in the way that they did, so must we sacrifice in the temple that is ourselves. We say, what am I, what? What, I, I got to go to the pet store and sacrifice after this? That's not going to go well with my neighbors. Do you know what the sacrifice is that God is looking for from you? Paul talks about it in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? living sacrifice. He wants you. This is how revival starts. The sacrifice that in our temple that we give unto the Lord is us ourselves. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. That's what God's looking for. That we realize that we are the temple. And the sacrifice that he's looking for from us is we ourselves. And there's a prayer that Paul offers in Ephesians 16 through 19. That I'd like you to study this week and pray for yourself. Paul prayed this for us. In verse 16 he said, 
that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, which is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There is the prayer of revival. There is the prayer of revival. I believe God wants to move. And it's my job to prepare you for when God does move. And if we could be all on board together, individually and collectively, praying a prayer such as this each and every day, taking our heart before God, and asking, us, asking Him to work in and through us. Asking Him to see if there be any wicked way in us, leading us to repentance. The revival will begin. But see, as Nathan said, I can't believe I'm quoting Nathan Frankowski along with C.H. Spurgeon and Paul the Apostle. Okay? I'm not even going to turn around, Nathan. I'm not even going to turn around. We're the sequel. If God did that in the 70s, what can God do today in 2023? And as Pastor Chuck Smith said, let's see what God has in mind today. Amen?